Good morning, Christ Community Church. It's great to be with you this morning as we meet together in our homes. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the members here at C3. I'm also one of the elder candidates at the church. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our study of Genesis, starting in verse 1. If you want to take a minute and get there in your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen here in just a few moments. You know, if there was a 24-7 news cycle in heaven like we have in our culture today, I've often wondered what you might see on it. What activities and events going on in the world would the angels be excited to watch on a regular basis? What kind of breaking news alerts would cause them to stop and listen with great attention for what would come next? I imagine when we come to this passage this morning, that if there was a 24-7 news cycle in heaven, it would have looked an awful lot like what we're seeing today. You'd have seen things like invisible disease ravaging mankind. Where will it strike next and how bad will it be? Is there a cure yet? Can anyone find a way to stop the spread? But you'd also see another thing that I think parallels what we're seeing today. You'd also see this line roll across the ticker at the bottom of the screen. It would say, God announces a shocking shutdown to deal with the spread. And I promise, regardless of how you feel about what's going on today, it doesn't hold a candle to what we're going to see in this passage this morning. So if you would, look with me at Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read starting in verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now before we go back through and, and look at this passage together, I want to point out that there are really two key issues that we're dealing with here in the text. The first issue that we're dealing with is the spread of sin that's taken place on the face of the earth. And then the second issue that we're dealing with is God's response to it. So you've got man's sin and you've got God's response. Now it's not like up to this point there hasn't been sin in the Bible, even really grievous sin. If you think about the things we've seen in Genesis so far, you've got Adam and Eve um, falling in the garden. You've got Cain um, killing his brother Abel. You've got Lamech taking two wives for himself and, and boasting of the murders that he's committed. And those are just the things that we've read about. So the problem of sin that, that we look at when we talk about sin in Genesis 6 this morning, the problem of sin has been present for the hundreds of years that we have covered here in Genesis so far since Adam and Eve fell into sin. But what's different as we come into Genesis 6 this morning is that we see the spread of the problem of sin has been growing exponentially 
as men and women have multiplied on the face of the earth. And that's what we see in verses one and two. The pervasiveness of sin, the corruption of man, his pursuit of disobedience, it finally reaches a climax and God responds. So take a look back at verses one and two with me. And I want us to see this response that God gives toward sin. Really the first real incredible response we've seen since the garden when when God handed out the curses to the serpent and to the man and to the woman. Verses one and two say this. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. If there's a way, I think, to define what we see going on here, it's that man's downward decline into sin finally reaches rock bottom. Now, what does that mean? At first glance, when you look at these two verses, there's nothing that maybe jumps off the page to you and says, why, why should God's response be that he would pronounce that he's no longer going to abide with, or maybe your translation says, contend with man forever, but, but instead is going to limit his years to 120 there's nothing immediate that, that causes us to understand why he would do that, but that's a pretty um, grave consequence for what we see taking place here. So what is it about the sons of God taking the daughters of man as their wives that's such a problem? Really, what it boils down to is how you interpret who the sons of God are. You see, there's been a lot of debate about this over the years. This topic is one where neither side on the, the debate seems to have enough evidence to prove that the other is wrong. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just lay out for you what these two viewpoints are and why they matter for what we're reading in the Bible this morning. Viewpoint number one, when we come to Genesis chapter six, verse two, when we're talking about the sons of God, is that the sons of God refers to fallen angels or demons who've taken up residence in the bodies of men and are thus influencing them. This idea comes from other places in the Old Testament where you see the term sons of God used. If you were to go and and look at Job chapter one, verse six, which was likely written even before the book of Genesis was, you would see there that it says, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The same thing is repeated again in the next chapter in chapter two. In fact, the term sons of God is regularly used in the Old Testament to describe a gathering of angelic beings coming together. And so when you couple that with New Testament passages like we have in Jude 6 and 7, which suggests that angels left their position and pursued immorality and unnatural desire, and when you pair that with passages like 2 Peter 2 that talks about angels sinning in the time of Noah, there's strong support for this idea. But then there's another side of this argument. The other side of this argument says that, that these are simply men who have come from the godly line of Seth. Think about what we've seen in the book of Genesis up until this point. Chapter four of Genesis details this ungodly line of Cain and his sons and his son's sons and how they go about life and filling the earth. And then in chapter five, you see the godly line of Seth, who is called the appointed son and after whose birth we begin to see people calling on the name of the Lord. And so in in chapter four, you've got the ungodly line. And in chapter five, you've got the godly line. And so what follows then in question six is the question, what happens with them? What happens with the godly line and the ungodly line? And chapter six 
answers the question. You see them mixed together. That's not the outcome that you and I would expect. It's not the outcome that any of us would want. And so that's part of the argument that this is um, men who are from the godly line of Seth. In addition, there are also passages in the Old Testament that talk about um, the people of Israel being the sons of God. And not only is that seen in the Old Testament, it's continued through the New Testament with the way that God refers to his people. You can also look in Luke chapter 3 and you can see the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, which traces through all of the names of the the men that we read about last week in Genesis chapter 5. And when you get to the end of that list, you see Adam, who's called the son of God. Finally, Jesus teaches in Matthew 22.30 that angels don't marry. And so you've got these completely different uh, viewpoints, these different opinions, these different ideas about who the sons of God are. My question then is, is why do these matter? Why do these matter as we come to the text this morning? Well, I think it matters for, for a couple reasons. If you, if you take viewpoint one, let's say that that's correct, then what you've got is you've got a bunch of men who were under the influence of demons and who are taking the good command that God gave to multiply on the earth and fill it, and they're tainting it with sin. I don't think I have to spell out for you this morning why men being under the influence of demons is a bad thing. But I do need to clarify something. Demons are not all-powerful creatures. They don't have the ability to exercise influence and control over whatever they want to. In fact, if you were to go back and read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 and look at the context surrounding those passages we looked at earlier, you would see that even Satan has to work underneath the permission and purview of God's willingness to let him work in the world. On top of that, when you see demonic influence in the Bible, you have to recognize that for a person to get to the point where they are able to be manipulated and influenced by dark spiritual powers, it requires an incredible persistence in sin and a hardening of the heart toward God. It also requires a willingness to forsake one's conscience to the point that you welcome the presence of evil. If this viewpoint is correct, then in the three short chapters since the fall of men, what it's telling us is that people have become so distant from God and so callous in their sin that they welcome evil spiritual influence in their life without question. That's not good news. The other viewpoint isn't any better. In this instance, you've got men who've been walking with God, who've been made aware of his commandments, following after the same sin of rejecting God's truth that we saw in the garden. Do you see that? It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, so they took them as wives. Remember, Eve saw that the fruit was a delight to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. So what did she do? She took of it and she ate. Keep in mind as we go through this passage that Adam was still alive when Noah's father was born. We don't know if they lived in close proximity to each other, but the the simple truth is at this time, as, as sin is being expanded upon the earth, you still have witnesses to the fall who are alive, whose stories have been heard by people directly from the source. And so really the core issue here in Genesis 6, no matter which viewpoint you adopt, is not who. I want to suggest this morning that the issue is what. What does fallen man do when presented with the option to walk with God and obey his commands? 
or take the opportunity to satisfy his own desires. What does he do? He satisfies his own desires. And from top to bottom, you now have a culture of people who have forgotten the Lord and have become a friend of sin. See what verse five says about people at this time. Verse five says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty severe statement. Now, does that mean that every single person on the face of the earth at this time was as evil as they possibly could be and that there was nothing good about anyone anywhere? No, I don't think that's true and I don't think that that's what this passage is teaching us here. But it does teach us something that I think is really hard for us to wrap our minds around today and it's the concept of what truly is evil. We use that word in our culture for the most heinous and, and dark things that a person could think or, or do or say or actions that are universally against the rules and laws that govern our societies about what a person should do. The Bible, on the other hand, views evil as anything that is contrary to the character and the will of God. In our world, in our terms, we think of it primarily as a physical issue. When we come to the Bible, we talk about evil and it's primarily a spiritual issue. What that means here in verse five is that these are people who are living on the earth that have nothing in them from a spiritual perspective that's good. There's no love for God. There's no desire for his commands. Even their righteous deeds, as Isaiah 64, six says, even their righteous deeds are like filthy rags. This is very much what we see in passages like Romans 3 and, and Romans 8, where we see that the, the nature of man, when not redeemed by the grace of God, is not only opposed to God, but it will not and it cannot submit to him. And again, that doesn't mean that this is full throttle evil all the time. Just like today, there are incredible people in our world and, and by our world standards who we would say are good people, they're benevolent people, they're, they're giving people. Times like this tend to bring out the best in some of us. They're morally upright people. But in God's economy, what is good versus what is evil goes beyond our actions and our behaviors to the motivation of our heart and to our spiritual condition. Jesus made this very clear in the gospels when he said things like, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you've had hatred in your heart toward a brother, you've already murdered him. Or when he says, you've heard it say, you've, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if a man has looked at a woman with lust in his heart and, and so on and so forth. Verse five gives us this glimpse beneath the surface into man's true spiritual condition. And it establishes what we've already known about man at this point, which is that outside of being redeemed by God, he will choose to satisfy his own desires. Even if those desires produce things which are considered good by the world's standards, they're ultimately done for self-centered and self-caused reasons, and they're not done out of a desire to obey the Lord and glorify him. The motivation of the heart is not toward God, and so man lives in perpetual sin. And that's what we see here when we come to Genesis chapter 6. Now, in the middle of all of that, we've established man's sin. We're going to see God's response. In the middle of that, we get this aside about the Nephilim in verse 4. Take a look there. Read verse 4 with me. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. 
These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So who are these Nephilim? Who, who are these, these people that we see about here in uh, Genesis 6-4? Some people think that these are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. But if you look deeper, the word Nephilim just means fallen ones. That's the literal translation of, of Nephilim. It just means fallen ones. And so you have these mighty men who for whatever they do, uh, whatever they've done, have earned this reputation that has categorically labeled them as fallen people. Why mention that here in Genesis 6? Well, perhaps because their nature demonstrated all that was wrong and broken with the world. Maybe they were a, a type of, of, of showing just how bad people were, that there were people like this upon the earth. There are a lot of scholars that look at verse 11 where it talks about the earth being filled with violence and corrupt and suggest that verse 11 is talking about what the Nephilim did, that they promoted violence and murder and atrocious acts on account of others with their incredible might. But I, wanna, I want to suggest something this morning, that they serve a distinct purpose here in, uh, in this text, and that's this. And in order to see that, we need to remind ourselves about the context in which the people of Israel sit as God gives this revelation to Moses. You see, the people of God are in the wilderness on their way to take possession of the promised land. Now, if you zoom forward in, in the, the Old Testament scriptures and you look at Numbers chapter 13 and verse 33, you get the tail end of the story of the spies that had been sent into the promised land to report on what it was like and then come back to the people of Israel and tell them all about the land. And when the spies come back out, all of them except for Joshua and Caleb are afraid of the people who live in the land. And so they give a bad report. And they finish by saying this. Take a look at verse 33 with me. It says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Now what does that mean? Quick spoiler alert. We're going to see this next week. But none of these guys, the Nephilim that are in Genesis 6, survive the flood. Bigger spoiler alert. No one does. That's the point of the flood. And so these, these men that you see in Numbers 13 are not from Genesis 6. So who are they then? I think they, like the men in Genesis 6, these men in Numbers 13 are simply mighty, ungodly men. And so why point this out then in Genesis 6? Why include this in the story? I think it's because God knew what was going to happen whenever we got to Numbers I think he knew what was going to happen when the people heard the report of the spies. And he knew the fear that the people who lived in the, in the land would create for the Israelites as they got ready to enter the promised land. And this passage in Genesis 6 would serve as a reminder to them that the Lord God who saves his people through the water, the Israelites through the Red Sea, Noah through the ark, is more powerful than any tribe of mighty men. And if God intends to move against them, they don't stand a chance. And so I believe that's why we see that here as an encouragement and a reminder to us that no man, no matter how big, no matter how small, could stand before God if he intends to bring judgment and stand a chance. And that'll be helpful for us to remember as we get ready to go into the next chapter this next week. So man's downward descent into sin has hit rock bottom. Sin is rampant on the earth. There's no spiritual good in the heart of man. God's good creation has been tainted by sin. What is his response? 
we see that from this passage that God despairs over and then he deals with man's sin. There are two separate divine judgments that we see pronounced on mankind here. The first is what we see in verse 3. So in response to the sons of God taking the daughters of men as their wives, he declares that man's days will be 120 years. You know, from this point moving forward, what we'll see throughout the Bible is a significantly decreased lifespan for people. Yeah, there are going to be people who live 400, 500 years old beyond this point in Genesis, but after Genesis, it just doesn't happen. That holds up true even to today. Even with all the amazing advances in medicine and technology that that exist in our world today, uh, recent recorded history only has one person who's lived past the age of 120, and there's debate about whether she stole her mom's identity when she was a little girl. So maybe put an asterisk on that one. Um, so, so 120 years, God says, I'm no longer going to contend with you. So you see the shortening of, of lifespans that takes place. And at the same time, this 120 years could also, in addition, refer to a period of waiting between when God made the decree that he would end all life on the earth and when Noah actually got into the ark. 1 Peter 3.20 says, God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that either way you look at this, it is a marvelous depiction of God's mercy. Remember the garden? Remember why God guarded the way back to the tree of life? He did it as a mercy to man so that man would not reach out in his sin and take the fruit of the tree and live forever in his fallen and broken condition, experiencing the weight and the sting of sin. I think the same is true here. It's not merciful for God to see man destroying himself through living in perpetual sin and not intervene and cut his day shorter. It is both a means by which to give less for which he could uh, rightly judge a man, but it's also mercy to those who seek to walk faithfully in a corrupt generation. It's also a mercy because it gave man time to repent. We don't see it here in the text, but there's no doubt knowledge of and, and experience of the Lord still on the face of the earth. There are some of the godly line of Seth who are still seeking to walk with God. We'll see that in the life of Noah as well. And so this gives them time to live and, and repent and proclaim the truth of what can be known about Yahweh God. But what about the second judgment? That's the first judgment is this shortening of years, 120 years. But what about the second judgment? That's what we see starting in verses six and seven. Let's take a look at that now. Verses six and seven say this. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So the Lord saw the wickedness of man. And, and I want you to think about that, that phrase. He saw the, the wickedness of man. And think about the, the parallel to what we saw in the creation story, right? God saw and it was good. He saw and it was good. He saw man and it was very good. And here he sees the wickedness of man and says, I'm bringing an end to everything. What that shows us here about the nature of God is this. God cannot leave sin unpunished. His justice requires that payment be made for sin. He doesn't deal with sin in a halfway manner. And so he looks at mankind whose rightful consequences for sin 
uh, is death. That's what we saw from the garden. And he sees how far they've fallen. And he declares that he will put an end to all life on earth. But I want you to notice something here. God doesn't just deal with sin and wash his hands and be done with it. He also despairs over it. Look at what it says. It says, the Lord regretted that he had made man. It grieved him. The word that's translated there in verse seven as sorry is is the same word that's used there for grieved. It, It literally means to sigh. Not the sighing that you do when your kid interrupts you for the 10th time in two hours while you're trying to get work done at home right now. We're talking about one of those kind of deep sighs that comes from the soul when the weight and the gravity of terrible things finally hits you like a ton of bricks. Let us not forget as we come to this passage this morning that God is not indifferent towards sin. It is something that he both requires justice for and that he is grieved by. I want you to think about how grieved or or angry you get when uh, someone that you love does something to intentionally hurt you or intentionally disobey you or contradicts something that's important to you. That feeling of wrongdoing and hurt that you've likely experienced at some point in your life. You know, it's not fair for us to put all of our human emotions on God as though he feels and reacts and experiences all things the same way that we do. He doesn't. But we have to remember that we have the emotions that we do because we are made in the image of a God who can feel sorrow and gladness and anger and despair and joy. Now, I want a quick note here for us just in, in case this jumped off the page at you, this, this passage is not teaching that God thought he made a mistake, right? There's a difference between expressing regret and owning that you've made a mistake. That's why it's important to note that the word sorry there, which we often associate with someone admitting their fault, is the same word that's translated grieved. God felt sorrow, as he watched the outcome of his good creation being tainted by sin. He felt grief as he watched those made in his image living and promoting a life which is contrary to his character and his will. But what he is not saying is that this was all a big mistake and I should never have made mankind at all and that this is totally hopeless. We see that with absolute clarity because of what we read in the following verse. In the midst of this very bleak, very hopeless situation, we see this. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The thing for us really to see from this passage, the last thing for us really to see from this passage this morning is this, that grace lifts man from sin to salvation. I want you to see how abrupt this shift is. We've got this very sobering passage and then there's this glimmer of hope. Why did Noah find favor in God's eyes? I mean, we see in verse nine that, that, that he was righteous and, and blameless, but before he was either of those things, he was first a recipient of grace. There's this drop of grace in the sea of sin. Even in a culture and a time where sin is rampant and everyone followed their passions and desires, God knew that his promise would remain. God would find a way to preserve the seed of the woman who would eventually come to crush the head of the serpent. He would find a way 
to deliver us from sin. You see, Noah was no more deserving than any of the other people living at this time to be a recipient of God's grace. Left to himself, Noah would have ended up where any of us would have ended up outside of Christ. Not necessarily as the most evil version of himself possible, but without spiritual good, driven to his own desires and not walking in obedience to God. And yet, here we see that God providentially secures for mankind and for all of us a path toward deliverance by working through the life of Noah. When I think about this passage, it reminds me of Ephesians 2, where we read about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, following the desires of our flesh, and that by nature we are children of wrath. But what happens in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2? You see the same idea, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. No matter the circumstances in your life this morning, no matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter what you've done or how you've lived your life up to this point, God is able to cut through the chaos of sin, the lack of spiritual good, the disobedience, and he's able to say, your sin may be great, but my mercy is more. He's able to rescue and redeem. That's what he did here with Noah, and that's what he still does today for people like you and I. Now, there are dozens of ways that we could take this passage today and, and apply it, but what I want to do is, is close with this. Today is Palm Sunday. Today marks the beginning of the Passion Week, the week where we remember the last week of Christ's life, the events leading up to and following the cross. As Jesus entered Jerusalem the week before his resurrection, people laid palm leaves down on the road and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And within a matter of days, the same people turned around and shouted, crucify him. Why? Why would they do that? Because just like Genesis 6, they were not seeking God. They were seeking to satisfy their own desires. In this case, a desire for a political deliverer. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted the benefits that he could provide. And so from Genesis 3 up to Genesis 6, up to the Passion Week, that has always been the default of mankind. Seeing what we want and trying to take it. Trying to satisfy our own desires. The Passion Week and Palm Sunday reminds us that from the beginning, despite man's sin, God has always had a plan to rescue and redeem mankind from this pattern of sin. And it came to fruition in Jesus, who set his face toward the cross for us who would feel the, the weight and the consequences of the sin of man pour down on him like a flood so that we could be lifted up. So that through him, as Noah through the ark, we could be saved. So that we might be able to find favor in the eyes of the Lord, not because of any righteousness that we have, but because Christ has dealt graciously with us and forgiven our sin. And so as you think about the week in front of you, as you think about the weight of sin as we've seen it in the Bible this morning, as you think about your own life or the world around you, let the fact that we're celebrating the resurrection this next Sunday be a reminder to you that sin and brokenness don't have the final say. They've never had the final say. There's always been the truth that we cling to as believers that God conquers 
sin and conquers death and conquers the grave so that we might experience life. They didn't know this in Genesis chapter 6, but we know that now. We know that God in his grace extends life to us through Christ. He reminds us that he's redeeming us and that he's making all things new. And so we don't despair. Even in difficult seasons like this one, we think toward the cross and we think toward Easter and we feel gladness and hope because our Savior has rescued and redeemed us. If you were to see the 24-7 news cycle in heaven 2,000 years ago today, the news would be much, much more hopeful. It would say that the cure has come and that within days, the curse would be lifted. May that bless you and encourage you this week as we get ready to celebrate Easter together and remember the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, it's difficult to come to a passage like this this morning and be confronted with our own reality that in the midst of our sin and our brokenness, we deserve consequence. The great news that we have as believers is the knowledge that Jesus died to take the curse away so that we might experience life. That's what we celebrate this week as we come toward Easter. It's the hope that allows us to come to a passage like Genesis 6 and see the bleakness of the condition of man and know that there's another way path, there's another way forward. We know that there's another path forward. We know that there's hope on the other side. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to that this week as a church and that we would walk toward Friday and walk toward Resurrection Sunday, Easter, with great anticipation and excitement in celebrating our Lord Jesus who rose and died again for us. We pray these things for his honor and glory. Amen.